0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is believe. Oh, Jack, Jack O'Hara. Boy, asking me
1: some interesting
0: questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Ritter. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara, absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jackie, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you you
2: asked me a couple questions. Live and broadcasting around
0: the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pr- pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack
1: O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien with much better interviewing
2: skills.
0: Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I am so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh dude. She's definitely totally going to
2: break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should've used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. What?
0: There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, Tick
2: Pick. I thought you said Tick Pick. No hidden fees. Download today.
1: I I guess it's now been 25 years since your big league debut in 1995. Uh, with the Baltimore Orioles. And I kind of wanted to pick your brain about how that whole experience was for you, because a totally different game 25 years ago as as it compared to right now uh, in 1995, because that was also the same year that uh, Cal Ripken broke the consecutive game streak from Lou Gehrig and became like the Iron Horse. Were you around for all of that in
0: 1995? Yeah, I got called up in June, so I got to see all of it. I was there for the 21-31 game. Wow got some
1: really great memorabilia the unbelievable pictures and, and you know keepsakes from that night it was really really a cool time wow and was that like I mean compared to now it's everything's televised when it comes to the draft everything's public with prospects back in your day when you got drafted what was that whole experience like for you I think it was in 89 correct yeah yeah it was a weird weird, uh, weird time for me uh, learned a lot right off the bat um I was a projected third-round pick coming out of high school, slipped
0: to the 17th round because I, God forbid, signed a, a letter of intent to the University of Texas. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I just I don't get it. It's like the, the pro scouts are sitting there telling you, oh, you know, what, what's it going to take? And I'm like, you got to draft me first before I'll talk numbers. I mean, yeah. let's, let's be honest. My, my, my signing bonus is determined on what round and what slot I get taken at. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I, like I said, I slipped to the second day. It was demoralizing. Um, you know, I, I, I was a, a big fish in a big pot, you know, top-rated catcher in, in the state of California, uh, starting catcher for the junior national team for, for USA. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, and I slipped all the way to the 17th round, and I was like, you know what? This is this is a weird, something's going on here. And then I remember getting getting the call from the Orioles, and I was thrilled to be drafted by the Orioles. Or the, it, well, actually, I should back up. The guy calls me after day one, and he's like, hey, uh, you didn't get drafted today. And I'm like, yeah, well, no no duh. Uh, and I was you – know, so, so what do you want he's like well we've got the first pick tomorrow um if we take you with that pick will you sign for you know x amount of dollars so i called my uncle rick who believe it or not after playing
2: 24 years in the big league gives the absolute worst advice of all time when it comes to this kind of stuff he's like yeah take that money and so i told the scout
0: yeah i'll i'll sign for that if you guys pick me up with the first pick tomorrow. Well, he called me the next day and he said, well, we didn't get you in this round, we got you in the 17th round, and we can only offer you this. And I was kind of locked in. I was like, well, let's see what happens. So I told my mom the guy was
2: coming. He showed up to the house, uh, heard that they had
0: reneged on their offer, and my mom threw him out of the house. Wow. So I went away to the Olympic Festival, played for the the team last, uh, then on to Team USA for the Summer uh, Junior World Championships, and had a monster summer, came back, and then all that money that was originally on the table was now on the table, and I ended up signing a contract like three days before I was supposed to leave for University of Texas.
1: Wow. It was, so for you, in that experience, going from uh, high school ball, uh, college ball, and then to the pros, what do you think was like the biggest learning curve for you when you're kind of like a big fish in a small pond, and then you go to the pros, and it's like everybody's just as good, if not way better?
0: Yeah. Well, I found out that uh, my size definitely had, uh, or I should say lack thereof, had a, had a big, I played a big role in how they viewed me. Um, yeah, I was a catch-and-throw guy when I got drafted. Uh, and truth be told, I you know I found out years later that they never saw me as the guy that, that could start in the big leagues, which I thought was ridiculous because you know I, I rode buses, I caught over 100 games every year in the minor leagues, and you know, it's not like you're eating in fancy restaurants and flying off, you know, on planes. You're on the bus eating Taco Bell, and I yeah. seemed, to, seemed, to be to, seemed to be able to recover and play the next night without any, any problems. I just I was physically too weak to swing a wood bat at that point in my life. Interesting. Uh, that was that was the biggest learning curve for me. Um, you know, we, we used you know drop three aluminum bats, which were basically the same weight as the, as the bats that I was swinging in pro ball, but the ball just didn't jump off of them the way it does the aluminum. So it changed everything for me, and, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, not being a 17th round pick and not being a prospect, I went into survival mode. Yeah, and I had this survive. like I didn't have the luxury that top round picks have with regards to failure. Uh, they they tell these they tell these top round picks, hey, listen, you know, this is how we want you to do it, and. It's okay if you don't do well at first. We know that if you keep doing it this way, um, we will, you'll get it eventually. And that's one of the, 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 the biggest biggest things that you understand right away is the day you're drafted might be the most important day of your career. Right. I... They, slap a, they slap a label on you that day that it is almost impossible to shake, good or bad.
1: Did you have any, like, uh, I mean, obviously playing for Jim Leland right off the bat in uh, Miami and Florida with the Marlins, but in through the minor leagues, you mentioned kind of like that pressure slapping a label on you. Did you have any mentors or coaches that kind of, like, I don't want to say toughed you, like toughened you up, but like kind of uh, changed your mentality when it came to playing baseball? Oh,
0: yeah, a guy named Bob Missick works He's still, still in baseball, works for the uh... – Milwaukee Brewers' organization. I uh, had him as a manager in three different places, uh, two A-ball stops and uh, AAA. And I remember, I'll never forget it. It was one of the most poignant moments of my minor league career. We were in AAA. I was in Rochester, New York, and, and we had been playing really crummy. And I was... Uh, I think it was 1993. I had just gotten called up from AA, and I was raking I was absolutely destroying
2: things. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 22 years
0: old in double uh, and I remember we, we played bad, we played poorly, even though we were a really good team, and Bob Bob came in after a game one night, and he, he basically looked, and he said, listen, he said, there's 25 guys on this roster. Only three of you have a chance to be, to make it into the major leagues and stay. Who do you think those three guys are? And everybody's looking around, and and he says, guess what the other 22 of you are? You guys are just there for those guys to have a team to play with. Wow. And, and he looked, and, and the next thing he said was, do you really think that the guy sitting next to you cares one iota whether or not you make it if he does? you think he's going to care about whether or not you're sending him Christmas cards? He goes, if you're, le- you're lucky if you make one real friend in the minor leagues it's cutthroat. Everybody cares about themselves. They're all out for themselves. They're all masquerading as team players, or at least they should be masquerading as team players. They're just hoping to get to the big leagues and hoping to survive. And that, when he said that to me and the group, that's when it became brutally obvious to me that this was not as romantic as people make it out to be in the movie.
1: So for you in that instance obviously the minor leagues it's free for all kind of every man for himself in the major leagues it's a business as well what would you say was like the closest group of guys that you played with during your career like from a, from like a point of where it was like more of a team effort as opposed to kind of everybody treating it like a job
0: yeah no when i was with the royals in 2000 2001 that was, a, that was a close-knit group. In 2000, we had a really good ball club. We were probably a couple pitchers away from being playoff contenders where we just didn't have any pitching. Uh, and then they started trading away guys like Randa, Jermaine Guy. Uh, but you know, that 2001 group that we had, man, we stuck. We couldn't do anything. I mean, we had a couple good, good solid players in the lineup. Uh, maybe one decent pitcher in Jeff Supon. Uh, but we, we scuffled, but, but we were all, on and off the field. We were close, close to one another. Uh, that's the closest group I've ever been a, a been a part of. Uh, early on in my career, you saw it, like, especially with the Marlins, when we got, you know, guys like Darren Dalton, Jimmy Eisenreich, and, you know, the, the other veteran guys, we used to sit around after the game and drink a few beers and talk about the game Evaluate our performances. What do we do right? What do we? What can we have improved on? Who are we facing tomorrow? How are we going to go about beating them? That kind of thing does not go on anymore in the Major League Baseball. It's 25 guys going in 25 different directions. Yeah. Uh, half of like I I can tell you I can tell you 100 with 100 certainty, and I won't name names. But when I was broadcasting, I used to see Blue Jay players in the parking lot seven minutes after the game ended. Mm. So, in, in essence, they didn't even shower at the ballpark. They came in, peeled out their uniform, they jumped into their civvies, and they were gone zone.
1: Now, why do you think that is in today's day and age compared to uh, back in the day?
0: Money. Money is, money is the root of all evil. So, you look at, look at look at the minor league now. You look at guys, I mean, look at the size of the signing bonus. You give a guy six million dollars, seven million dollar signing bonus, and he would have to be a complete and utter idiot to ever have to work again in his life. So you take you take this first round pick, you give him a six to seven million dollar signing bonus. Even if you cut it in half because of taxes, that's still three to $3.5 mil. Yeah. Okay, we'll leave it in the bank. You know, go buy yourself a respectable vehicle and leave the rest of it in the bank in five years while you while you're playing minor league ball you double your money yeah in ten years in ten ten years you've quoted your money because of compounding interest so you tell me where's the incentive to stick around to work a little bit harder to be a team guy you're already rich right so you see it comes down to character and there are very few guys like Mike Trout out there who are doing it because the right way uh, doing it for for the right reasons. Uh, so then you extrapolate that out. You've got these all these prospects, these really good players, and they've all got all these giant bonuses tied up. You know, they don't spend any time in the minors. They go and they they spend like 60 days here, 60 days there. There's no good players left at the AA or AAA level, like a handful. So all the good players are in the show. Mm. And get to the big leagues. They're not fundamentally sound like they were 25 years ago. They didn't have to. They didn't have to spend a year at every level and show
2: to the, and get to the big leagues and you know and get there with you know four thousand at bats, right. twenty five four thousand at bats. You don't see guys you know getting to the big leagues with 300, 400 innings under their belt. Um, and so you know the minor leagues are garbage.
0: There's no prospects at the upper level and it just comes down to money and these kids, you know, they know flat out if they play well personally, it doesn't matter whether the team wins or not. It used to because that World Series bonus that guys used to get would cut would sometimes double and triple their salary, but now it's like it's two weeks worth of work. Right. Uh, so it's it's that's where that's where things have gone awry. They they need to get get real. And, and, and basically say, you know what? Let's stop slapping the union membership in the face by offering a kid a $7 million signing for us based on what he's done against amateur talent, the likes of which will never see a pro field, let alone a big league field. You're going to give a $7 million for what he did against a bunch of amateur smucks? Come on, yeah. man. That's just, I mean, how, about, how about the journeyman? The grinder, the grinder guy who, who clawed out a, a, a ten year
1: a, a ten year career in the big leagues, and never made seven million dollars total. And what do you what, what, what do you say? What do you think the uh, uh, biggest difference is, I guess, in in your experience playing with uh, someone who, again, was kind of like all about the money, like you just mentioned in today's game, everybody's just leaving right after the games, but in your instance here, playing for guys, who would you say is like, was the most stand-up all-around teammate, someone like a superstar who was getting paid the big bucks, but didn't really let it get to his head, in a sense? (laughs) Gosh, that's a tough, tough question.
0: Um, superstar? I don't know. I had some great teammates, you know, like you know, Troy Ross, Matty Stairs, uh, Scotty Rowland, uh, Royce Clayton, um, you know, some stand-up guys. I had some, you know, some other guys that I played with early on in my career, Garrett Dalton, Bobby Bonilla, Gary Sheffield. You know, but even those guys did. Sadly, they, exactly, they did They're not going to hang around all night. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of a lot of guys out there that are just like cage rats. You know, they love hanging out yeah. in the ballpark. Of course, those guys usually end up divorced a couple of times. <laughs> it's just the minor leagues are so much better than for camaraderie than the big leagues because nobody's. You're sitting on buses in your underwear, drinking beer, playing cards. Yeah. And you're talking about baseball, and you're dreaming of the you're dreaming of the big leagues and, and what's going to happen. And then you know once they get there you know it's funny the it, like guys are always worried about getting paid early in their career and then they worry about winning championships later right i got to taste some championship early in my career so losing was a bitter pill to swallow
2: the rest
1: of my career I kind of wanted to talk about that 97 season. I guess that whole experience in 97-98, you guys win the World Series, and a very exciting World Series win for the Marlins over the Indians that year, Game 7, uh, Edgar Renteria, everybody knows the story. And then you switch over to 1998, totally different, uh, totally opposite end of the spectrum, really, with 103 losses. What was that whole experience like from a mental standpoint going from first to worst? Oh, it was... Probably the worst summer I've ever had in my entire life. Um, we were terrible, and we knew it, and Jim Leland, uh, he doesn't
0: deal with terrible very well. Yeah. And uh, He doesn't deal with, at that point in his career, he didn't deal with young players very well, and, I mean, obviously, he, he got way better at it later on in his career, but you know, Jim was tough to be around back then. I can't imagine what it was like for him having this wonderful all-star team, and then and then Wayne Nzinga completely pulling the plug on it. And Jim's probably sitting there thinking, well, what it? "I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. I signed up, right up to manage the '97 model, not, not the bad news Bears. <laughs> uh, it was it was bad, man." you uh, know you know
2: what, you know what? It, it was but it was it was also a huge learning experience for me uh, understanding what the difference was between a real big leaguer and a minor leaguer uh a contender and a pretender I also
0: learned about I also learned some valuable lessons about being a good teammate um uh, you know, I I was I struggled that group mightily. Yeah. I got a chance to play when they traded away Charles Johnson, and then they and then we had Piazza for a blip, and then they got rid of him, and I had a chance to play every day, and I fell off my face. I didn't handle it well, and I gave my teammates and and the organization the impression that I was a selfish player. When inside, I wasn't really. I was just so embarrassed and so disappointed in the way I was playing. It manifested itself in, in ways that. that didn't present very well, and, and it was really great for me to have a couple teammates and some
1: coaches bring it to my attention because it changed the way I it changed the way I put on my face the rest of my career. And then you obviously go to uh, Toronto. You live there now, so I'm assuming that uh, you just love it. Uh, North for your time in Toronto, that's like the first time you actually got a taste to be a like a full-time catcher in the big leagues. Like that 98 season, you talked about uh, getting a chance and, and not really uh, meeting your expectations on a personal level. And you go to Toronto, you spend time with uh, Benji Molina, who they signed in the earlier years, and then Rod Barajas in the later stages. But what was that whole experience like uh, getting that taste to become a full-time big league catcher? And I'm assuming, uh, like, why, why do you love Toronto? so much. It's obviously, still live there.
2: Well,
0: they, they look, hey, yeah. you know, and I, I, married, I married a Canadian girl. And they liked me right away because the hockey mask. And the, the, <laughs> hit the Makes hockey, sense. I had the hockey hair when I came to town. Yeah. And I'm a blue-collar type of guy. And I could do a little bit. By the time I got to Toronto, I could hit a little bit better. And I I had already had a couple of arm surgeries, but the, the defensive specialist days were gone. But I could do a lot a lot of things pretty well, and that was that was good for them. Um, you know, it was, it was Toronto had his challenges as well. You know, I, I butted it with with the general manager J. P. Ricciardi. You know, I was putting up career numbers, having great years, uh, leading the club uh, as a veteran player, and you know he kept trying to he kept trying to suggest that it was a fluke. He kept bringing in guys like Benji, and we're bringing in guys like Barajas and. You know, I mean, I can tell you stories about the the arguments and the, the confrontations that we that he and I had, you know. And then and, and, and then later on the lies and the you know back and forth and, you know, So my, my time in Toronto wasn't without its challenges. But the, the 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 performance that I had here was basically due to late blooming and maturity. I, I just I, everything came together for me at the right time. Unfortunately for me, my body broke down at the end. Um, and it was time for me to, uh, you know, a couple years later, it was time for me to step, step away. I wasn't able to do the things that I thought I could do physically. And then mentally it started to wear on me. I didn't want to be a part of you know losing organizations anymore.
2: Right. So it was time for me to go. But, you know, it, it, was, it was an opportunity for me to play every day in, mean, you know, two of the five years that I
0: was there. Uh, it, I put up some good numbers. I made some money. Uh, It it led to my broadcasting career. I developed a relationship that led to my broadcasting career, which was good. Um, And so, you know, overall, uh, positive,
2: uh, you know, still, you know, consider myself
0: a Blue Jay. Uh, You know, I spent more time here than any other stop along my my career. So, um, overall, pretty good experience. Uh, But learned a lot about people,
1: and I learned a lot about, uh, you know, getting it in writing, so to speak. And uh, this won't be the first time that you've been asked this question, obviously, but with uh, the whole imperfect documentary coming out, obviously, uh, Roy Halladay, Hall of Fame pitcher, you got the chance to catch him for uh, numerous years, probably the most more than any uh, backstop. Was Roy Halladay just a a different animal then compared to the rest of the pitching staff?
0: Yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, Roy Roy was completely driven put in an eight-hour day every day. Like, you never saw him in front of his locker, listening to music, goofing off, playing video games. Roy was either uh, throwing, working out, refueling, getting therapy, or studying film. That's that's all, the only thing he did all day long. He was uh, a nice guy, but a very aloof teammate. Yeah. He was hard to know. I knew him well because we, we, we spent a lot of time together, obviously, as battery mates. Uh, and, you know, I, I always tell this is
2: a really funny story. Like, at the beginning uh, of our tenure
0: together, you know, Roy Roy used to put on the bitter Bob face on the day he pitched. Like, he stormed around the right. and he didn't He didn't want to be talked to by anybody. And... I basically told him, I said, look, dude, I, go, I get it. It's your day to pitch, but, you know, you can stop with treating me like crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, A, I'm your catcher, and, B, I got more service time than you. I ain't going to put up with this. You know, you need yeah. to be a little bit of respect. I say,
2: because here's your other option. Either you knock this crap off when it's just you and me in the room, or I'm going to start
0: telling the hitters what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want you're not going to treat me like that. Yeah. And after that, you know, Roy kind of giggled and, you know, we He and I never had a problem. I let Roy do Roy. And I loved Roy because Roy's day to pitch was my mental day off. I didn't have to work that hard. Yeah. He took full responsibility for everything he did. The only thing I had to do was keep him from being predictable, which he was. He was ridiculously predictable. <laughs> His attitude was, here it is, hit it, I dare you. And I'm not coming off of plan A until you prove to me that you can, you can beat me. And that's what made hitting it against Roy so easy. I, I knew what he was going to do, and of course I always I always claimed that I could hit anybody that I caught very well because I knew how the ball was going to move, I knew what yeah. he was trying to do, uh, and so you know a guy like me should not have been able to be so successful against Roy. Uh, even the outs were loud, <laughs> uh, but we you know we had a good relationship, and I I I I, I was devastated and rocked to my core when he passed he and i actually had a conversation about him flying planes yeah and i told him i said you're a knucklehead
2: i said, don't be doing that crap i say you're not a pro pilot i said my uncle, my uncle
0: rick lost one of his best friends in the game in thurman munson when he crashed his plane right i said you know what knock that knock that knock that off until you know you, you're done raising kids and you're, you know, you're you're done playing ball and i was devastated it, and, and you know and then and then watching the documentary um, hearing about his struggles with, with substance and you know demons you know I just not the Roy I knew mm-hmm. um, you know Roy I don't think Roy was dealing with any of that stuff when he was with Blue Jays I think it all uh, started to happen to him when he was with Philly uh, the injuries piled up you know his his desire his need to be the best and not let anybody down and I think I think the perfect storm happened, you know, with Tim, you know, with regards to mental health and substance abuse and man, it was devastating. I couldn't I like I one of the most shocking days of my life after him dying was the autopsy report.
2: I was like, What? Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. this this is not the guy.
0: You know, like there's there's a lot of cultures in in the game of baseball, subcultures in the game of baseball. Yeah, you got your your A D D boys who, you know, they're on they're on the Adderall, Red other stuff. Then you got your drinkers and then you got your you know guys that are into other things that you know, apparently are, are now legal in some states, but uh, you know, those are all things that Roy I would never have identified Roy with. He was a straight arrow. The guy we couldn't even get him to go out for a beer with us. Wow. So how could you possibly imagine that a guy who won't even go out for a beer with you? Is struggling with mental health demons and, and abusing substances like painkillers and antidepressants and stuff. It's just, it was, it was unbelievable.
1: Not the Roy I did. I mean, that stuff's just devastating. I totally agree with you on the fact with planes. I mean, I mean, those just scare the crap out of me. I, mean, I had a buddy who invited me to go out just to, like, tour the town. I'm like, I'm not going to do that with you. And he was, like, a, he was a CFI, like, a certified flight instructor. I'm like, uh, maybe in, like, 20 years if you haven't crashed at, at yet at all. Like, I, I can't handle that stuff in the air. For, for for him, though, like, you mentioned, like, very hard guy to get to know. On off days when he wasn't pitching, like, what was, like, the biggest that he kind of, I guess, let loose in a sense? Uh.
0: He liked the fish. He was, you know, he had a house on a lake. and you know, he had a boat and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, Roy's days off were trips. <laughs> heck, he usually go to the he usually go to the ballpark to get a workout. And he was on a five day schedule. I mean, he did not EVA from him during wow. the season. Uh, I lived close to him in Florida, so you know, I got a chance to during spring training and you know the the, the winter months. I got a chance to spend time with him and his family. Uh, so you know. Yeah, he liked. He he had he, had, uh, he had cars. He had old cars. He was a hobby guy. He's a tinker. He like he, you know, he made models. He's he was you know? a <laughs> nerd. He, he had he had these things that he he could not sit still. I can tell you that. Yeah, absolutely sit
1: still. I mean, that, wow, uh, and I, I kind of wanted to switch gears here to kind of your relationship as a backstop. Obviously, catchers and uh, umpires have their relationships, their kind of grievances towards one another. I was watching some of your uh, Sunday roast videos on the uh, the Manalist TV, and you're not a big Doug Eddings guy, but, but what is your relationship with umpires, at least back in the day uh, when it came to, you know, calling balls and strikes and kind of setting that structure before game.
0: Well, my my relationship with umpires pretty well deteriorated when Quest Tech came in. Yes. And they combined combined the leagues. Uh,
2: the, The problem that I had with the umpiring was I was raised in a different system.
0: You had American League umpires and National League umpires. And I was taught be respectful. You don't ever turn around on them. Uh, you know, you speak to them a certain way. There are certain phrases that you can use and certain phrases that you cannot use. Uh, it's the old, you know, you could, you could, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to use foul language. Oh, or, totally. By all means. But you, know, you go back to the movie Bolter, and there were never true words spoken that, you know, Crash gets ejected from the game for calling the umpire a cocksucker. Yeah. And you, the, 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 the sentences leading up to that are, uh, that's a cocksucking call. You can't run me for that. That's a cocksucking call. You can't run me for that. Do you want me to call you a cocksucker? Because I will. Yeah. Do you want me to call you a cocksucker? Beg. Pretty please beg. You're a cocksucker. And then he throws him out of the freaking game, right? Right. So... That's the way it used to be. I used to be able to say, once I got my feet wet, I got a couple years under my belt, I could be ripping an umpire a new one, sticking up for my pitcher, negotiating on calls, you know, working him, as long as I never turned around. Because you didn't want anybody in the ballpark to know that you were ripping him a new one. Okay? But now, you can't say a word. Since Quest Tech came out, since uh, they started evaluating umpires electronically and these new umpire schools, like, you can't say a word. These guys think that they're above reproach. They actually throw gas on the fire yeah. in, in, you know, tense situations. They're, they're assholes. I'm just going to tell you plain and simple. They're assholes. Uh, I got to the point in my career where, you know, when they combined the leagues, umpires, American and national, uh, you know, there was still the notion that, hey, uh, I've been blocking balls from you guys with nobody on base to protect you. For going on 20 years now, why are you giving some rookie who's been here 15 minutes two inches off the outside court? Like, I should literally, after my service to this game and my protection of you all these years, you should have enough respect for me to make that rookie get the same service time I'm getting that I have before you give him the benefit of the doubt out there on the edges of the strike zone. I should only have to hit the white. And that was my biggest contention at the end of my career was, are you kidding me? My strike zone is as big as everybody else's in the league. I've been blocking balls for you for a long time. And I can't even ask you about a call anymore because you're so sensitive that I'm not even facing you and I ask you about where a pitch is. You take off your mask and you come around in front of me because you're having a bad day, and you start you start shit with me right there in front of everybody when nobody in the ballpark knew we were even having a conversation. So they started breaking all the rules. They started yeah. disrespecting peers with tenure like myself, and I said, you know what? I've had enough. I remember I remember the day the day it all changed me. So I had a pretty decent uh, relationship with Eric, Eric Cooper and Coop came up to me I, I, was, I, I had come out to start the game I hadn't said hello to him I'm throwing the ball back to the, uh, the pitcher in the warm-ups and he, he leans in as they do to get a look before the game starts <laughs> Say hello and you know he says Zonnie, how come you don't talk to me anymore and I'm like don't take it personally Coop I don't talk to any of you anymore he's like why is that I said does it make a difference I said, does having, having polite conversation with you
2: help me get pitches for my pitcher? Does it help me gain a better strike zone for myself when I'm hitting? I don't think so. You guys are still screwing me out there on the corners, and it doesn't matter
0: who's pitching. I said, if Roger Clemens is on the mound, yeah, sure, I understand. I might have to cover two inches off the outside corner because he he's earned it. Greg Maddox, Tommy Glavin, whatever. But Joe Blow, rookie? Give me a break. Why in the world would I spend any of my gas on you guys when you're going to end up screwing me in the end i'd rather just not say anything to you ever and leave it at that that's the way i started that's the way i started to approach it at the end of my career (laughs) i even went to the point i even went to the point to say listen i'm not blocking balls for you anymore and they're like well why would you stop doing that i said because it doesn't do me any good why should i why should i suffer all of the punishment of blocking balls for you when it does me no good. It doesn't do my team any good. I'm like, and I, and I got downright nasty with some of them and said, hey, you just made the list, buddy. And they're like, what list is that? I said, the list of umpires that are going to wear every single ball in the dirt from now on with nobody on base. <laughs> and I started O-laying. I did. I started O-laying them at the end of my career. I started letting these umpires wear, wear 91-mile-an-hour fastballs in the Simply because they were Simply because they were cantankerous, pugnacious, irritating, and had no respect for the hierarchy of the game. And they were all worried about the bullshit Quest X, which which put out false statistics anyway. They used to come to spring training every year and tell us that the umpires were getting 95% of the calls right in the game of baseball. And I'm like, dude, that's not even close. I catch every night, and you guys don't get 95% of the calls
1: right in one inning, let alone a whole game. Yeah, Save those guys. Those aren't even close to right. Who were some, I mean, I guess for the most part, I guess as an organization, they were mostly toxic, but for you personally, who was the worst out of all of them? I know Doug Eddings is one that you didn't like. What about a guy like Angel Hernandez, who I feel like is universally hated as an umpire?
0: You know what? Angel, he's he's all about Angel. Right. There's no doubt about it. Like just, just look at look at his look at his nonsense claim of uh, being overlooked for playoff work because of racism. Right. He, over, he was overlooked for, for playoff work because he's scored. Right. He's consistently ranked
2: in the bottom three umpires every single year. Uh,
0: and he always had to make it about himself. But he always did something in a game to draw attention to himself. I mean, I, I I honestly believe that he spent more time worrying about how he looked than right. getting caught the right. <laughs> there were lots of, but you know what? I got to the point where I absolutely, absolutely adored the older umpires. I love Joe West. Yeah. All the old school guys, Tim Cheetah, uh, even the even the Hershbeck, you know, guys. I, I I love those dudes. You know, I I, I remember Hershbeck threw me out of a game. And you know, I lost my mind, I smashed my helmet on the on the ground and he just looked at me and he goes, Hey Greg, you gotta go And I was like, Yep, yeah, you know, you're right, Hirsch, I gotta go. And that was it. Like mm-hmm. I knew I had crossed the line, but he did what I loved about that guy was he didn't take an opportunity to show me up and make a big right. deal out. Of he just said, Hey, you gotta go And I'm like, All right, see you later You know? And you know, there were there were just guys that like to push. Guys that like to push. Uh, you know, in the heat of the battle, you're going to say and do things. I was like the umpires that could, could have a conversation with you the next day, like Ted Barrett. Teddy Barrett, he threw me out of a ball game one, one night in Houston. Uh, Roger Clemens was on the mound, and he was giving Roger everything. And I went back to the dugout, and I started smashing the bat rack, and he threw me out from the field, and I didn't even, all I did was turn around and he was staring at me, and we caught eyes. And as soon as we caught eyes, he threw me out of the game. He went out wow. of his way to show me up. He went out of his way to show me up. And then, you know, the next couple of days, we had a conversation about it. And he was like, yeah, you know what? You know, maybe I shouldn't have tossed you right there. You didn't say anything to me. I said, no, I was, up the, I was beating up the rack, and that's it. So,
2: hey, but when you have the ability to be grown men and have a conversation have a disagreement about something, maybe make
0: each other a little bit better, a little bit more tolerant. You know, that's when that's where, that's where growth happens, and that's when great relationships can happen. But towards the end of my career, these new umpires started coming in, they didn't want anything
2: to do with a relationship. They wanted to be above reproach. They wanted everybody to see them.
0: They actually thought that people were showing up to the ballpark to see them work,
2: and it was complete and utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. Now, do you think in today's
1: game, uh, moving forward, obviously they've talked about uh, the electronic strike zone moving forward as a possibility. Do you think like five, ten years down the road that that's a real possibility, given how toxic and, I guess, really bad and unprofessional that umpires have been? Well, I think first of all, I think the electronic strike zone is nonsense. I've seen it in
0: play in the Arizona Ball League, and I can tell you right now that the pitches that are going to get called strikes— curveballs at the bottom of the zone, high fastballs, nobody wants that. Right. Nobody wants that. Even the
2: pitchers don't want it because they're not going to get the benefit of the doubt outside, uh, on the outside corner. Because if
0: it's electronic, they have to throw the ball over the right of the plate, and unless you're throwing 96 plus, you're going to get tattooed. If you have to throw the ball in the white all the time, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. Right. Everybody. If you look, if you look at Greg Maddox and Tommy Glavin and their careers, and some of the other Braves pitchers, you you want to know what happens to guys like that when they have to throw it over the white. Take a look at what happened to Greg Maddox and Tommy Glavin at the last couple of years of their career. Right. When, 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 it, when it be, the umpires stop giving those guys five inches off the corner because they hit the catcher in the chest, World reality set in? A lot of things changed for those guys. Their stuff didn't change. They were still throwing the same velocity, still had the same movement, still
1: had the same ability to locate. But the only difference was now they had to throw it over the plate. And guys started them. Yeah. I mean
0: with this electronic strike zone, there's gonna be even more more trouble for the game doing this than I mean, what is the umpire there for? Why even have him if all he's gonna do is like respond to a ringing buzzer? Right. It's a replay. It's a replay. It's taking away one of the funnest things in the game, the umpire and,
2: and, and the manager arguments. Like it's, you don't want to go out there and argue anymore because you know you're wrong. I mean,
1: it should be interesting moving forward I mean, to me, I agree with you I haven't seen it personally, you have in the Arizona Fall League, I mean, it should be interesting uh, to say the least I kind of wanted to delve into your experience uh, in TV and broadcast I'm an aspiring sports uh, journalism student in college senior year, uh, what was your experience like working in TV right off the bat after your playing days was it a big learning curve for you or did you adjust quickly? No, I adjusted pretty
0: quickly, it took me really want to show. Uh, it's, I've always been comfortable in front of a camera, a microphone, and microphone. That's one of the reasons why Jamie Campbell, my broadcast partner, recommended me for the job. Uh, once I learned how to use a multi-camera setup, uh, I was fine. Where to look, when to look, how to move. Uh, yeah, I just developed a formula. I, uh, Jamie Campbell would ask me a question, I'd start my answer on him, I'd go to my single shot. Um, give the you know the middle two thirds of the answer and then come back to Jamie on the on the, the two shot and, yeah. and finish up the answer. And you know a lot of the U.S. networks, as you notice, um, and I've worked for MLB Network, they'll tell you we don't want you to look at the signal, which seems to me completely counterintuitive. But literally, that's all it is, man. Uh, understanding content. If you know the content. Uh, you shouldn't have any problem. Right. Be able to go off the mirror. You don't need to do research and preparation are, are the major things. And an understanding of what what kind of a, a camera setup have you got? Uh, understanding how to project your voice a little bit. Oh, that is trial and error. Just go to the studio early. Yeah. You know, do some demo type stuff. Uh, but then when it comes to being a journalist, like being prepared, asking the right questions, asking questions at all. One of my big pet peeves, and I'll give you a little advice. Don't ever show up after a game that you've been watching for three hours, put a microphone in a player's face and say, Tell me about this. Right. You tell me about it. Ask me a freaking question. You've been there for three hours and you can't formulate a question? <laughs> that you wanna separate yourself from from the media past? That's the kind of journalist you should be. Have intelligent questions to ask. Ask questions. Don't just make statements or tell people what to do. You know, like speak to this. You speak to it. You know, I, I, they used to drive me crazy about some of the guys that we actually had on our broadcast. And I was like, you've been there on the sidelines for three hours and that's the best you can do? Yeah. How about you call me, How about you call me before you go on air with that garbage? It's irritating. <laughs> It's irritating. As a player, you're irritated. First of all, after a loss, you don't want to talk to anybody. Right. So that's why they are real strategic in putting certain people on the sideline because angry players are more willing to talk to certain people after the game. Right. Uh, especially after a loss. But whether you're – doesn't matter who you are, ask intelligent questions. Formulate a question. If you see a pivotal game – Moment, and don't ask how you felt. How does it feel to win that ball game? Gee, it sucks. Can I go now? Like, that, that's the dumbest question in the world. How does it feel to be successful? Mm-hmm. Really? That's what that's what your that's what your broad, broadcast school taught you to, to to ask. Spend all that money on education, and that's what you ask? Come on, dude. Come up with something tighter than that. Right. You know, what was you know what was what was the pitch sequence there? Why did you decide to go with the slider in that particular situation? Man, that's the kind of question they're going to be dying to answer. Right. Because then it makes them think, oh, I'm super smart. You know? Were you? Uh, hey, it, it, it looked like you were sitting all over that hanging breaking ball first pitch. Is that were you were you sitting on it, or were you just re- looking fastball reacting breaking ball? You know, like. What, what what did you see out there on the field that led you to, to take the extra
2: base in that situation, right. or, uh, or worse? What did you? Why did you
0: decide to risk going for third with two outs in that situation? What did you see that led you to make that make that decision? Right, I you know? totally agree. Totally agree. You, in that You've You, you got to know your content. You got to know the game. You can't just look good in a suit or or a golf shirt comb your hair real pretty, put on some makeup, and have a microphone. All right. You got to go do some research and actually understand
1: the game that you're covering. So, when, when, when you're doing this, uh, obviously, uh, right after your playing days, obviously had a, enough passion for it to start uh, Manalist TV. How different was that kind of having like your own crew and setting things up by yourself as opposed to uh, doing it for a network?
0: Uh, I,
2: I thought it sucked. I mean,
0: it, was, it was a lot of work. I, I I had a really a newfound respect for the amount of work yeah. that producers and directors and behind the scenes folks uh, put in. I mean, my broadcast team was three three kids. You know, one of them one of them I got a job for at Sportsnet. I'm real happy to see she's doing well. Uh, but it was it was a pain. It was a pain to do a 30 minute show. It took seven hours worth of work. Uh, you know, I, I I enjoyed it a little bit. We didn't get the support that we were looking for. I mean, we got we got to the point on the by YouTube specs where we could actually monetize. But you know, I I, I grossly overestimated the amount of my you know fans at Sportsnet uh, who would follow me to the new format. They, oh, yeah. It was it was too hard for them. It was just easier for them to turn on the television at seven o'clock than it was to go, you know, point and click and search me out once a week. Right. I don't understand. Apparently people are really, really lazy. <laughs> <Add> twenty twenty, man. <laughs> Millennials, are you kidding me? They'd rather, yeah. yeah. they'd rather choke on bad content and bad delivery than uh, seek out, you know, quality information with with uh, with quality uh, presentations. Oh, whatever. It, it was an experiment that I that I that I nicked in the bud. Uh, it was just too much work. I couldn't justify it anymore. I was spending too much time away from other projects that were actually paying the bills. So I, uh, I walked away from it. I yeah. don't know if I'll
1: ever go back to television. night. we'll see if somebody somebody ever offers me an opportunity to go back. Interesting. Where did the uh, manalist nickname come from? Uh, guy named Ken Reed that worked with, or you know, that worked at Sportsnet. He was a, 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 a news anchor. He was an anchor. And, uh, you know, I was analyst, and, you know, my persona was, you know, kind of
0: like uh, most interesting man, you know, in the world, that Dos Equis guy, you know, I was, right. you know, here I am, I'm, I'm the, I'm the very hetero, uh, you know, scotch, beers, you know, manly, you know, all this perceived manly stuff, so he just added an M to the word analyst, you know, he, here's the man, the manalist, you know, it's just snowballing there. And it took on a life of its own, you know. And then people started, you know,
1: they either called me Don Cherry of baseball or (laughs) Males. That's funny. That's where that that came from. It's funny how somebody, somebody gives you a nickname and it sticks interesting so the last question i have for you because again don't want to take too much of your time here going on 50 minutes or so but i wanted to get uh your take on your experience for one of your current projects obviously the Greg on baseball academy what's the experience been like uh i guess not only right now but overall since you started working with uh, the younger generation trying to improve their skills
0: well you know it's as i expected uh you know, the kids here in Canada are a couple of years behind the, the kids in the U S they're passionate about the game, but not very fundamentally sound. Um, you know, there's a number of really good coaches up here in Canada doing, doing a great job with kids, but just not, not enough to keep up with the demand. So a lot of kids are getting a lot of bad information up here. Yeah. Uh, they're not playing, they're, they're, they're learning how to play baseball from people who watch YouTube, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a very tough market for you know a former you know, a Canadian who used to play pro ball to come home and, and make a living teaching baseball. It's very difficult. Whereas you know any old Tom Dick and Harry up here in Canada can you know throw throw out a shingle and call themselves a, a hockey school and, right. and make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Uh, it's just different for baseball up here. It's growing, um, just like the kids you know knowledge of the game. I mean, I my 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 one team that I have, I have a 15 year travel team. And, uh, you know, they were very raw when I got them, uh, but they've polished up quite nicely. It's just a matter of putting in the time, putting in the reps. Um, you know, they're getting quality information from me and my staff. Uh, they're learning how to do it the right way. And then once they learn how to do it the right way, it just comes down to desire. Do you have the mental stamina and the physical
2: stamina to put in enough reps so that you can do it?
0: Like I don't remember where I heard this, but it, it, the, way, the way I look at it is, you do it till you get it right, and then you do it so many times that you can't get it wrong. Yeah. So it takes mental stamina, it takes physical stamina, and, you know, teaching kids the right way to do things takes time. It takes a lot of reps. 1,500 perfect repetitions for something to become a reaction. And, you know, in the game of baseball, a lot of times you have less than half a second to evaluate the information on the table and react.
1: So you better learn how to do it the right way, otherwise you're just spinning your wheels. Who do you think uh, is more kind of frustrating in your eyes, uh, major league umpires or dealing with parents that are narcissists?
0: Well, thankfully, I, I don't have that trouble. Good. Uh, I have a great group of parents who uh, who defer to my expertise. They hire they, me to do a job, and I charge a pretty penny for it. So they are like all in. Yep, great. Right? Whatever you think. You know, when I need to discipline a kid, I, I always check with the parents and I say, hey, can you recommend um, a method, a, a technique? How do I how do I reach your kid? And th- that makes them feel like they're involved in the process. Right. And I think they respect that. Um, ultimately, they know I'm the boss, and that if they want to continue in the program, that they have to take a step back away from me and let my do let me do my job. You can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. If they were baseball experts, they wouldn't be hiring me to, to coach their kids. Exactly. Uh, that's pretty much the, method, the, the message that I can date early on. Uh, I make all my parents' side a code of conduct that outlines uh, how I feel about interference and whatnot. And typically when you know, they're, they're, you're paying what they're paying, they don't want their kids to be bounced from the program because they're interfering too much. So they, so they differ,
1: which is which is the right, the right thing to do. Well, I, I definitely can respect that. Not the experience I had. I mean, a lot of I feel like even in today's age, uh, it, if you're not a uh, like a former major league ball player like yourself, more parents kind of take action into their own hands. And I, I don't know if you've seen that personally, but for for us growing up, like it, like your dad coached you and it just wasn't, it wasn't. Right, in a sense, right?
0: Yeah, well, that's that's why when you get to the elite level, when, when people are paying five figures a year for coaching, you got to step away. And I, yeah. I told my parents right away listen, uh, you, your kid has to earn playing time. Just because he's a part of the program doesn't mean he gets to play. What you're paying for is, is his development as a player, he'll earn playing time. I put it as simply as that. You your kid will earn playing time, but you're paying for the player development program. You're not paying for him to play. You're paying for me to teach him and uniform him. That's it. Tell your kid to go earn playing time. And every parent has been respectful. They have not have not had a problem with it. Like if you ask if you have to come and ask me why your kid's not playing, you're not watching. You should know immediately why mm-hmm. they're not playing.
1: And how are things right now with the academy, given everything going on right now?
0: Uh, pretty good, you know. We hit, when, when, when they opened up to uh, certain phases, we were allowed to have small groups. Um, it's weird walking around with hand sanitizer all the time. Tell my kids to get away from each other, or when we're in the indoor training facility, hey, put your mask on when you're not swinging. You know, all that stuff's extra, it's pain in the ass. Uh, but you know what? At the end of the day, kids are kids are getting get to practice and exercise and for me the greatest satisfaction i have is when i see the light bulb come on and they feel it they know it they're better and then all of a sudden you see a little swagger, a little a little bit of confidence brewing and the next time they come back and they're a way better player and that's the most meaningful and rewarding thing that any coach could ever feel and even if i have to get it in small groups, and I gotta stay out there an extra hour to make sure that I accommodate every player. I'm gonna do it, and thank God I have a wife that's on board yeah. with allowing the freedom to, to stay out on the ball field a couple hours extra because I'm passionate about my kid.
2: Um, and yeah, it's it's, it's tough, but like we're you know we're
0: getting back to we're supposed to be getting back to games here pretty soon. Uh, weird, right now apparently we're only about to have 50 kids in the league with me. Yeah, four teams, three teams, whatever it may be. Uh, that's tough, but it's still baseball. Right. Uh, you know, it's better than the alternative: sitting indoors playing Fortnite. and kids are kids, sloppy. They're slothy these days. They, oh, yeah. they can't, even run, can't even run around the block a couple of times without gasping for breath, and wondering why, why we're being punished. Oh yeah. Uh, but uh, it's, it's it's fine. You know, I think at the end of the day, kids are kids. They're passionate about the game. They're going to put in the work. You just have to show them how to work. You've got to show them how to do it. Yeah, I- out of
1: I mean, hopefully things go back to semi-normalcy here pretty soon, so you can hopefully get that going more than it already is. I guess less is more. But, uh, Greg, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your Wednesday morning to chat with me. I know went a little bit over from what I said, but uh, hopefully that's okay. Uh, and, again, I hope you and your family stay safe during these wicked times, because it's really, really crazy right now. I really don't know how to explain it any better than that.
0: No, I appreciate it, man. I, I, I take up time. I, I like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday.
2: oh dude. She's probably gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used Tick Pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick Pick. Look. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Dude. What?
0: There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh,
2: Tick Pick.
0: I thought you said Tick Pick. No hidden fees. Download today.